day uh, that Jesus and his disciples arrived in Jerusalem. And so on Palm Sunday and on this Holy Week, Jesus' ministry is, is coming to a crescendo. He is arriving in Jerusalem knowing full well that he will never leave the city. And that in just a matter of days, he will lay down his life for the sins of the world. It's a day that we celebrate his love and his commitment to us. His love that was so deep that he entered the city knowing he would soon die. And it's that love that we are going to focus on today. But we're going to focus on a later event in the Holy Week. So let me just give you a brief uh, timeline for the week before Jesus would die on the cross. And then we will get to Thursday night. So on that Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is significant because it's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which predicts that the Messiah will enter or come to the city on a donkey. The people in Jerusalem, they see the prophecy, and they know the prophecy, they see it being fulfilled, and they celebrate, and they celebrate Jesus' entrance. The problem is they don't recognize that he is coming to die for the sins of the world uh, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to uh, setting their lives free here on earth. They believe he is coming to conquer Rome and free them from Roman occupation. But this false expectation, this disappointment is going to lead these same people who are crying Hosanna on Palm Sunday to cry crucify just a few days later. And in many ways, Palm Sunday is a tremendous, uh, tremendous warning, much like the, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount that we have been studying. A warning to follow Jesus for who he is and for the right reasons. And not for our own expectations, our own comfort, riches, and ease. And so that's Sunday. Jesus enters and the crowd celebrates him. On Monday, Jesus goes and he clears the temple. When Jesus arrived at the temple, he found the courts full of uh, corrupt money changers. And he begins overturning their tables and clearing the temple. Uh, and in Luke 19, 46, he says, My temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So he clears the temple on Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus again goes to the temple and calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and declares himself as the spiritual authority, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And as you can imagine, this upsets the Pharisees, those in charge, and this puts things into motion that will lead to his crucifixion. This is also believed to be the day that Judas will negotiate the price by which he will betray Jesus. And it's later on Tuesday that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and it's there that he shares what we now call the Olivet Discourse. And in this section of scripture, Jesus uses parables to talk about the destruction of the temple, the end times, and about heaven. You can read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Then on Wednesday, we kind of have a pause. We don't really know what Jesus did on Wednesday. But it's believed that he rested with the disciples after days of confrontation and in preparation for the days to come. And then we get to Thursday. And Thursday is Passover. And on Passover, Jesus sends Peter and John ahead to make preparations for the Last Supper. It's that night after sunset that he washes the disciples' feet, that they enjoy this Last Supper meal together, that he predicts his death once again, and he predicts that one of his own disciples will betray him. And then from there, from that moment, they go, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And it's there in the Garden that we're going to join Jesus and the disciples today. But for me, that timeline helps me keep track of things, and I hope it does you as well. So we're going to be in Mark 14, 32 through 42, if you want to go there. But when we join Jesus today, the Last Supper has already happened. He has predicted his death. Judas has already left, and he will shortly be arrested. We're less than 24 hours before he will die. And it's here in the garden that we are going to see the cost of Jesus' sacrifice. And it's also here in the garden that we're going to see his love for you and I on full display. 
So we're in Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 32. We'll read it. It'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for just one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, for here comes my betrayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for this story. We thank you for this moment um, where we get to see just the, the depth of your love on display. God, pray that as we study this passage of Scripture, Lord, that you would just help us to comprehend, to help us to help reveal yourself to us, how much you love us and care for us. That we would see just a glimpse of the cost. That we would see that you went to the cross out of your love for you and I. God, I pray that as we study and as we read your word today, Lord, that you would just reveal yourself to us. I pray there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they might surrender and experience your love today. God, I pray that we would just evaluate, Lord, and that our lives would be changed as we see how much you care for and love for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your death and resurrection. In your name we pray. Amen. So I think when we think about Jesus' sacrifice, when we talk about his death on our behalf, we often only focus in on the physical sacrifice, the physical cost of his death. But here in the garden, we see just a better glimpse of the depth of his sacrifice. And we see that it was so much more than just the physical suffering. Here in the garden, we get a glimpse of the anguish, the despair, the wrath, the abandonment he faced on our behalf as he took on the wage, the consequence of my sin and your sin. Throughout his ministry, he predicted his impending death. And in Luke, it says that he set his eyes towards Jerusalem, determined to go and be our sacrifice. He lived his life knowing he was going to die, but here in the garden, the reality and the sacrifice seems to flood over him in a way he hadn't experienced it before. It's here in the garden that we see his humanity and the, the anguish in this amazing and powerful way. It's here in the garden that we get a glimpse of what it cost Jesus to give his life on our behalf. In college, I had a friend and roommate that uh, he would probably have been best described as agnostic. He didn't necessarily believe there wasn't a God, but he certainly wasn't a follower of Jesus. So we had a lot of conversations about faith, and he would regularly bring me his thoughts and his questions. And one of those nights, he said something that stuck with me uh, forever. He said to me, I don't get what is so great about Jesus. He says, everyone talks about him dying for the sins of the world, but who wouldn't if they were him? He said, if I was given the opportunity to die for the sins of the world, I would absolutely do it. So what is so great about Jesus? I thought that was a, an interesting thought. 
And knowing my friend, I absolutely believe he would lay down his life for the world. He's the type of friend that would take a bullet for me any day. He's just a good guy. But that perspective, that view completely misses the reality of who Jesus is. And we get a glimpse of that here. It's here in the garden that we get a glimpse into this real suffering and sacrifice Jesus endured on our behalf. First of all, Jesus was God himself who humbled himself to the point of leaving heaven on our behalf. Then he lived a sinless life we could never live. And so my friend's hypothetical question isn't even a a possibility. And then Jesus not only gives his life, but he knows it's coming and he willingly goes. But he not only takes the death we deserve, but he takes all of the suffering, all of the wrath, all the righteous judgment that our sin deserves. And he's abandoned and separated from the Father, which my sin deserves. His sacrifice is so much more than just dying. It's so much more than just the physical. That's what my friend was focused on. That's what we so often are focused on. And it's that suffering, that abandonment that Jesus sees in the garden. And the Bible says it causes him to stagger under the weight, the abandonment of of it all. Verse 33 says he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. This Greek word here literally means suddenly he began to be distressed as if he saw with new eyes what he was about to endure. The word troubled is is stronger, a stronger Greek word that means he was overcome with shocking horror. One commentator compared this to the emotion you would feel if you came home and saw your home ransacked and everyone you loved murdered in a brutal fashion. This is an emotion, a horror that we don't even want to imagine. It's shocking, it's overwhelming, it's distress. A horror so much so that verse 34 says he becomes sorrowful to the point of death. Luke, if you read Luke's account of the garden, it says he was under such strain and stress that he began to sweat drops of blood. A condition called hematridosis, which occurs when you're under such stress that your capillaries literally begin to burst. And so what is it that Jesus is seeing here in the garden? What is it that he is feeling that that causes him to experience this shock, this horror, this distress? Jesus knew he was going to die and suffer physically. He's set his mind to go to Jerusalem for that very purpose. He knows it's coming, but it's here in the garden that he seems with new eyes to feel and see the reality, the judgment, the wrath, the abandonment he's going to experience. See, up until this moment, Jesus, he withdrew to be with the Father, to have his strength renewed, and the Father had always met with him. The Father had always been there to encourage him, to, to praise him, to strengthen him. And yet here in the garden, in his deepest moment of deepest distress, what do we hear from the Father? We hear silence. And so for the first time, he feels the pain and the abandonment that our sin leads to, and he's going to take upon himself. He feels the abandonment of the Father. And then he goes back to his friends, and he says, I just need some encouragement. He says he stumbles his way back to the disciples looking for some support, and what does he find? finds his disciples, his friends, sleeping. He needs someone's support. He needs to know that he's not completely alone, and they are asleep. He needed somebody in their sleep, and so he wakes them. Then verse 39 says he goes back, and it says he prays the same thing. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Can you remove this cup? Can you remove this this cross? Can you remove this sacrifice? Is there any other way? Again, we listen for a response. We listen for another option. But we hear nothing. Only silence. Because there is no other way. 
Jesus is the only one that can take the cup, that can take the wrath, that can take our sin away from us. He is the only sinless one that can endure the wrath of God and give his life on our behalf. He listens for the Father. He listens for the voice of the Father, and it is noticeably absent. And it's there in the absence of the Father's voice that we see God's love and a glimpse of what our sin costs. God so loves us, he so loves you and I, that he turns his back on Jesus and he pours his wrath on the one that he loves out of his love for you and I. For God so loved the world, we sang about it, for God so loved you, for God so loved me, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We hear love in the garden. But for Jesus, he hears only silence. He hears there is no other way. And he surrenders to do the will of the Father despite what it will cost him. Jesus is staggered by the weight of the abandonment of the Father and the wrath he would endure almost to the point of death, Mark tells us. And his response is, not my will, but yours. In Gethsemane, Jesus stares into the horrors of hell. To the abandonment of the Father, he almost dies from it. But his incredible love is seen in the fact that he sees what is coming and he still voluntarily goes and takes our place. Jesus sees the horror. He sees the cost. He sees the physical and emotional pain that awaits. He sees the abandonment. And he doesn't say, that's too much. He doesn't say, I pass. But out of his love for you and I, he still goes forward. Right? Adequate words don't exist to express the suffering Jesus would endure. And the love that compelled him to continue on and take the wrath, the death, the suffering, the abandonment that I deserve. In Isaiah 51, 17, it describes God's wrath for our, our, for our sin as a toxic poison kept in a cup. We heard that phrase, cup. Take this cup away from me. And the gospel is that as that cup was given to us because of our sin, what we deserved was the poison. What we deserved was the death. Jesus steps in and he willingly takes the poison. He takes the cup. He takes the wrath and he drinks it so that we don't have to experience it. Jesus takes all that we deserved in our place, he gives us heaven. He gives us forgiveness. Many commentators I read this week compared the wages of our sin, the cost of our sin. They, can, they compared it to like an avalanche coming at us. They said, imagine you're at the mountain, you're just skiing, you're snowboarding. I can't do either of those. I'm snow tubing with my friends. And you look up and you see this massive avalanche coming at you. I didn't know this, I did some research on avalanche, but a fully developed avalanche can weigh a million tons and travel at 200 miles an hour. And so you're just there just having fun, and you look up and you see this massive wall of snow traveling at 200 miles an hour at you. You're going to be buried, you're going to be overwhelmed, you're going to be dead in a matter of seconds. There is no chance of survival. You're going to be taken and overwhelmed. This wall of snow is coming at you, and it's going to be a thousandfold what it would take to kill you. And so you see it coming. You know you have no chance. And right before it hits you, it says the ground opens up, and it swallows the snow so that not a touch, not a flake touches your boot. The commentators say that's a picture of what Jesus does for us. The wages of our sin cannot be overcome on our own. Just as that avalanche cannot be stopped in our own power. The Bible says no matter how hard you work or how hard you try, you cannot overcome your sin. You cannot make up for it. In the same way, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, no matter how big your shovel is, you can't stop that avalanche from taking you over. 
That's what Jesus, that's what the Bible tells us about our sin. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, you cannot overcome the sin that separates you from a holy God and the wrath the sin deserves. But Jesus steps in front and he takes it all. He takes the wrath, the wage of our sin, so that not a flake, not a drop of our consequence touches us. He took all that we deserved upon himself so that we can be free, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be in a relationship with him, and so we can inherit heaven one day. Because God so loved the world, he determined to save the world, and Jesus was the only way. And Jesus, here in the garden, overwhelmed, despaired, staggered, looks into the cost, looks into God's wrath, looks at the cross, and he willingly goes in my place, in your place. That's the gospel, the good news at its core. Jesus goes to the cross and endures all that we deserved, all that our sin deserved. He drinks the cup of wrath, the, the cup of poison described in Isaiah, and he drinks it completely so that not a single drop remains for you and I. Jesus has taken your place. He's taken your penalty. He's taken your death so that you can have abundant life in him. The reality is without Jesus, we don't stand a chance of being saved. We can't work hard enough. We can't be good enough. We can't do anything to save ourselves from our sin. Our sin that separates us from a holy God. And Jesus here in the garden, he understands the reality, the gravity of what we are facing without him. And so he willingly goes to the cross. He willingly dies. He willingly says, not my will, but yours, so that you and I could be forgiven. The Bible says, if you will surrender your life, you will turn from your sin. If you will follow him, you will be forgiven. This is what in theology we call this substitutionary atonement. Jesus, in my place, has paid the price for my sin and your sin. And he instead offers his reward, his righteousness, his sinlessness in place of our sin. He gave his life. He took your death. He took the wrath you deserved. And he saw it all at Gethsemane. And it staggered him almost to the point of death. And yet he says, I'll go. This is so just overwhelmingly amazing. He saw how much it cost there in the garden. But his love for you is so great that he still went to the cross. He still endured the wrath so that you could experience his love and forgiveness. That's his love on display. So first of all, have you experienced that gift, that exchange? Have you ever surrendered your life and experienced his forgiveness for your sins? Well, since it's a free gift, the price has been paid by Jesus. But have you ever said, Jesus, please forgive me. Please be the Lord and Savior of my life. He loves you and he loves me more than we can comprehend. That's our first point today. Jesus' love for you is greater than you can comprehend. And it's here in the garden that we see the incredible depth of his love. It's just so amazing. He saw all the cost, and he still went to the cross because he loves you. Paul says the cross is what puts on display God's love for us. The cross shows us how great and how far and how wide and how deep God's love for us is. Theologian Jonathan Edwards, he asked the question, why did God let Jesus see this before the cross? He says, if anything, wasn't this dangerous to show Jesus how much it would cost? Why didn't God wait until he was secured on the cross to show this to him? Why would he show it to him in the garden? Edwards concludes, it was so we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily. So that we could see him go to the cross knowing full well what he was about to experience. So that his love for us would be put on display even more. 
The circumstances of the cross of Gethsemane were designed to put God's love on display for us all the more. God turned his back and poured out his wrath on his only son because God so loved the world. God so loved you and me. That thought just it blows my mind. Jesus saw and he still voluntarily went to the cross because he so loves me. Luke twenty two forty three 43, in his account, Luke says, An angel came to Jesus at the end of his time in the garden, and he came to minister him. We don't know what he said, but perhaps Hebrews 12, 2 gives us a glimpse of what he might have said. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Love J.D. Greer's sermon on this. He said, the joy of what? What was the joy set before him? He said, what would Jesus obtain from the cross that he didn't have before? What would he have on that side of the cross that he didn't have on the other? Was it the approval of God? Did he need to go to the cross to to earn God's approval? No, Jesus already had God's approval. Did he have to go to the cross to earn the kingship of the universe? No, he already had that. What was the one thing that Jesus had on the other side of the cross that he didn't have before? There's only one thing. It was you and it was me. He went to the cross for one reason, that was to save you and me. He goes to the cross to save us, not because of anything we have to offer, because we deserve it, but because of his great love. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And he says, and that is what we are. When I look at Gethsemane, when I look at the cross, I struggle to find the words to share. But instead, I stand in awe and amazement at this love, unable to find the words, but beholding that my Savior would die for me. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? His love is so much greater than we can comprehend or even express. I was thinking about this, like, it's just, I I can't find the words. And, And I was trying to think of a comparison but when you, when you travel to the ocean, the ocean is pretty amazing. As far as you can see up the coast, and as far as you can see out to sea, there is ocean. It is massive. It is huge. It is expansive. And when you travel to the ocean, you get a glimpse of the power and the size of the ocean. But it's just a glimpse. I grew up in Oregon, so when I would travel to the Pacific Ocean as a kid, uh, they say you can see three miles out to sea, and then as far as you can see up and down the coast, all you see is ocean. When I was a kid, we might walk into that ocean three or four feet. Pacific Ocean is cold. Oregon's beaches are always colder. Uh, So you didn't swim out into them too far. So for the beachgoer, that's your perspective on the ocean, your experience with the ocean. It's big and it's powerful. But the reality is that although I can only see for a few miles, the Pacific Ocean stretches some 5,000 miles between Oregon and Japan. And although I may only experience it at a depth of three to four feet, the average depth of the Pacific Ocean is 13,000 feet in depth. And they guess, they, they approximate, its, most, its deepest point is 36,000 feet in depth. That's a picture of God's love for us. We recognize His love. We think about His love as something that we can comprehend in our limited understanding. But when in all actuality, it is exponentially greater than we can comprehend. I've got an idea of how big the ocean is, but it is so much greater, so much more powerful, so much deeper than I can experience and know. God's love for you is so much greater than you can comprehend. 
My favorite hymn of all time, it sings this. Could we with ink the ocean fill? We talked about how great and how big the, ink, uh, the ocean is. And were all the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? If our only job was to write the love of God above, it would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Friends, God's love for you is so much greater than you can know and you comprehend. Do you experience his love and do you live daily in awe of his love? This week, I would challenge you to spend some time reflecting on Gethsemane and reflecting on the incomprehensible death of God's love for you and those you love. Don't take it for granted, but as you prepare for Easter, would you just reflect and behold his love this week? God's love is greater than we can imagine or comprehend. That's our first point, our first truth. But the, the rest of the sermon, the next two points, I just want to give kind of two practical applications of why this matters. Why the depth and greatness of his love matters. And the first really practical truth that we see in this, and our next point is this. If Jesus did not forsake you in the garden, then he never will. He saw the cost and he went forward. He said, not my will, but yours. And he went and he died for you. He saw the pain, the heartache, the despair, the wrath, the abandonment in the garden. Out of his love for you and I, he went through with it. And if he loves you that much, you can trust that he will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13 says, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. For what can mere mortals do to me? This world is difficult. We will face challenges, we will face hardships, we will feel abandoned. Sometimes our, our feelings will, will lie to us. But when we look at the cross, when we look to Gethsemane, we are reminded that we will never be abandoned. We will never be alone. We will never be forsaken because of God's love for us. And if you accept Jesus, your Lord and Savior, he will never, ever, the Bible says, leave you or forsake you. Even in your darkest moments. And so no matter what you are going through, remember the truth of God's love for you. Don't ever let your circumstances lead you to the point of believing the lie that God has abandoned you. That God has forgotten you. That God doesn't love you. It's the garden, it's the cross that proved his incomprehensible love for you. John Owen said that in light of the cross, the greatest unkindness you could do to God is to doubt his love for you. Jesus, the Bible, the gospel of Gethsemane declares to you that you are not abandoned, that you are not forgotten, that you are not forsaken, no matter what your feelings or even your friends may say to you. I love Isaiah 49. It says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you, God says. For see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So the reality is you may feel forgotten by the world. You may feel forsaken by friends and family. You may feel unimportant or unnecessary, but your God has not and will not abandon you. He went through Gethsemane for you. He went to the cross for you. And he's literally, the Bible says, has you engraved on his hands. I can never be forgotten. You can never be forgotten if you are his. Your name is on his hands. That's a truth we must remember and speak over our lives in our darkest moments. 
When you feel distressed, when you are tired, when your feelings are, when you are feeling all alone or abandoned, turn your eyes from your situation to this garden where Jesus saw what was coming and he willingly went to the cross because he loves you. Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, in light of the cross, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Greer writes, in your darkest moments, you can know that you are not abandoned, but you are loved. You are forgiven. You are embraced because you can see that in Jesus' darkest moment, he did not abandon you. And he took all of the wrath and abandonment your sin deserved. So preach the gospel of his love to yourself. Preach the gospel of his substitution for your sin. Preach the gospel of his forgiveness and abundant life to yourself. Preach the gospel that in him there is no more condemnation for you. In your darkest hour, you can have hope and light because of what he did on your behalf in his darkest hour. This week, I would encourage you to write down somewhere that, and you will see it often. I am not alone. My God is with me. Let that truth dictate your peace. The God of the universe is there with you while you teach your kids. He is there with you when you are annoyed with your spouse or neighbor. He is there with you when you are tired. He is there with you when you are overwhelmed. He is there with you when you are afraid. He is there with you always and will help you through. Don't believe the lie that you are all alone, but rest in the truth of who God is and his love for you. Final and last application for today of God's incredible love for us is this. Much like last week's message, but, but you and I, we must evaluate our lives in light of God's love for us. Last week, we talked about who is our master and what am I living for? Today, I would challenge you to reflect on this question. Does my life and do my priorities reflect God's love and sacrifice for me? God so loved me that he sent his only son to die for me. I am so loved that Jesus took the pain and the anguish and abandonment of the cross, and he still went, he still endured it so that I could be forgiven. Jesus gave up everything out of his love for you and I. If that's true, does the way I live my life, prioritize my life, reflect his love? Jesus, after his resurrection and right before his ascension, he leaves us with our mission, our purpose as his followers. He says to us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He has saved us in his extravagant love, and he has sent us to live our lives for the purpose of sharing his love and hope with the world around us. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Jesus came and he died for your sins so that you can be forgiven. But he also came and he died for the sins of your family, of your friends, of your neighbors. He came and died and offers forgiveness of sins for every person in Green River, in Sweetwater County, in Wyoming, in the world. Does your life reflect that reality? Do your priorities? Are you leveraging all that you've been given so that others might experience his love and forgiveness too? So that others will no longer experience condemnation or abandonment? Do your prayers reflect it? Are you asking with urgency and desperation to the one who can save? As we asked last week, are your prayers focused on you and the temporal? Or are they focused on God's love and the internal implications of knowing him for those around you? Jesus gave his life for you and I, so the only proper response is for us to give our lives back to him. Jesus didn't die so that you and I can just sit around and play church. He didn't die so that we could huddle up and talk about how bad things are in this evil world. 
that he died for you. And he died for your neighbor and for your mom and for your spouse and for your friend and for the guy at the gym and for the lady down the street so that they might know and worship him as well. So real practically as we close, I want to close just a few questions to ponder. First, do the size of your prayers match his sacrifice? Are you praying for him to move and to save those you love? Are you praying for him to save those you know? Are you praying for him to move and transform our community so that they might know and worship him? And secondly, if, is what you are pursuing with your life worthy of his sacrifice? Jesus didn't die just so we could get rich and live an easy life. That's not what Gethsemane is all about. We are dealing with eternity. He went to the cross to die for your sins and for those around you. Are you living your life? Are you prioritizing your life so that they might know him as well? Lastly, is what you're pursuing with your life worthy of his sacrifice? Or maybe better, is what you're living for worthy of him dying? I said lastly there, but here's the last one. Have you ever experienced Jesus' forgiveness in your life? It's the greatest offer you've ever been offered. The Bible says that you are a sinner. We've talked about that. And the consequence of your sin is death and separation from God, which is more sorrowful than you can imagine. Jesus looked at the consequence of Gethsemane, and it staggered him almost to the point of death. But we said that he loves you so much. He loves you so much that he willingly went to the cross for you and experienced the death that you deserve so that you will never be condemned, so that you will never uh, spend eternity in hell, so, you will, but so that you will instead experience forgiveness and life in him. He loves you. He took the cup, the, the poison, the guilt, the shame, the condemnation you deserve, and he drank it all. He took it all so that you don't have to experience it. And all you have to do is accept his gift and make him Lord of your life. Bible says if you do that, if you follow him with your life, if you ask for forgiveness, he is faithful to forgive. There's no magic words, but a sincere heart surrendered to him. You can pray something as simple as this, God, I know I've gone against you. I know I've sinned. I know I've lived for myself, and I am sorry. Would you please forgive me? God, I believe that you love me. I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that you raised from the grave in life, and I want to follow you with my life. God, would you just fill me with my spirit so that I may know you and follow you all the days of my life. Possibly if you pray something as simple as that, if you repent and turn from your sin and surrender, God will save you and you will be his. Your name will be written on his palms. Your name will be written in his book of his life, and he will never leave you or forsake you. And in him there is no more condemnation. Have you ever experienced his love? Have you ever experienced his grace and forgiveness? As we wrap up, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and Emily's going to come and play. We're going to do something a little bit different today. After I pray, we're going to take a moment, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, The Lord's Supper or communion, it's not a magic activity that forgives our sins, but it's just really a time to pause and to reflect and to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Uh, In the Lord's Supper, we will take uh, grape juice and we'll take bread and it will just help us to remember his sacrifice, the blood he shed and the sacrifice of his body on the cross. And so I ask you after I pray just to take a few moments or, or take as long as you need to just reflect on his love for you, to reflect on his sacrifice, to reflect on the truth that he will not abandon or forsake you.
Then I ask you to consider that question that we've closed with. Does my life and do my priorities reflect his love and sacrifice for me? And I pray that as you reflect, as you commune with God, he will reveal any areas where you are living not for him but for yourself. And if you're here and you're not a follower, Jesus, you don't need to reflect on that, but you need to reflect on, do I know Jesus? If I experience his love and forgiveness. And then after a few moments, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you feel that you are ready, when you feel that you are right before God, then you can just come up. The, 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 uh, the bread and the cup will be over here. When you feel ready, you can come and grab them and take them back to your seat. And then together, we will take the Lord's Supper um, together. So when I see everyone's come and gotten their, their things, then, then we'll take it together. So I'll pray for us. Emily's going to come and just play. And as she plays, I just ask you to pray and to spend time with God. And then when you're ready, to come and take the cup and the bread. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to come and to live the sinless life we couldn't live. We thank you that when he saw the cost out of his love for you, for us, and, and for everyone in this room, he said, not my will, but yours be done. We thank you that he went to the cross, that he gave his life as the, the substitute for my sin and for our sin. We thank you that he rose victorious over the grave, and that we can know that in him life is available. So God, I pray first, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you in these next moments, you would just speak to them. That you would reveal your love to them. That they would know how much you care for them and love them. And God, if they're ready, I pray they would surrender their life and follow you today. God, I pray for the many of us that have made that decision, that have followed you for a, lo you for a long time, God, that you would just... Uh, speak to these, us in these next few moments and that you would speak to us clearly and we would know how much you care for us and love us. That we would be reminded that you will never, ever forsake us. God, I pray that you would reveal to us those areas where, where we have drifted and we are chasing the things of the world as opposed to you. God, that you would call us to deeper faith. God, I pray that as we take the, the cup and the bread, Lord, that we would just uh, know the depth of your love as we spend some time reflecting on your sacrifice. So God, I pray that you would speak to us in these next few moments, that we be reminded of your deep love for us. In your name we pray.
Bible reads, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Dear Lord, we thank you for this moment to reflect, Lord, and we thank you that you willingly went to the cross and gave up your body on our behalf so we wouldn't have to experience the death that we deserved. May we know and rest in that day. It's your name we pray, amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, Lord, we thank you that you saw the cost and you went to the cross out of your love for us and that you shed your blood so that we could be forgiven. God, I pray that we would know your love, reflect in your love, live in your love, and go forth in your love this week. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you um, so much for being here today. Thank you for uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper with us today and celebrating um, Jesus' life and his death. And next week we get to celebrate his resurrection. And we do